Uh, so we're starting a new series, um, and it's kind of a book end to 2019 in some ways. We began 2019 with a vision series talking about what is our mission, and we talked about our mission statement of engaging our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time. We talked about the vision of what does it mean to engage our city, one of, in my opinion, the greatest city in the world and one of the largest cities in the world. What does it mean to engage millions and millions of people with the gospel? It's one thing for us to have a vision that that goes, that sounds great, and that sounds optimistic, and that sounds wonderful, and then to some extent, it's so big, you you don't even know where to begin to chew, if you will. You don't even know where to begin to to start that idea, or, or how do we even go about that? And we talked about even just in simple terms, that for us, that meant one relationship at a time. We are... We talked about and recognized the understanding of exponential growth and multiplication and how one relationship becomes two and two becomes four, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, and the idea of what is it, what could happen if multiplication took place. And we're believing that as we engage in relationships, as we focus on our neighbors and our coworkers and every individual relationship, every individual encounter and conversation, every one-on-one, that it has the potential for gospel multiplication. It has the potential of seeing the gospel multiply to our city and beyond. Well, as we think about the end of 2019, we're going to continue, if you will, almost a year later, but bookend that series that we started in January with the series where we talk about uh, the measures of a disciple. What do we mean by this statement, the measures of a disciple? All throughout my life, just through TV, through culture, through conversations, you've heard statements, or at least I've heard statements, about what is the measure of a man? Now, the point of this is not to answer the question or talk about biblical manhood or anything like that. The point of this opening illustration is to talk about the language of measure. What is the measure of a man? What is a real man? This movie would portray a real man as, as this. Whatever this is, it doesn't really matter because the next movie is going to portray a real man as something completely different. And depending on where you grew up, if I grew up in, in a, a lot of times in a setting where I grew up watching westerns and, and country stuff, the measure of a real man was, you know, the, the, being able to ride a horse or do something outside and shoot guns or whatever. And, and maybe this, this side would say the measure of a man is someone who could, uh, you know, provide for his family, make money, and look good in a suit. This, guy, this definition of measure of man was dirty, and this definition was clean. Point is, once again, I don't care about, we're not trying to answer the measure of man, but the question still it comes to us from this is, who determines what a real man is? Once again, using that question of measure into our conversation, what is the measure of a faithful disciple? We would say as Christians and as followers of Christ that we want to be faithful, devoted disciples of Christ. But what is that? It's one thing for us to say that I want to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, that I want, I want to give my life to Jesus, that I want to call upon Him as Lord and Savior, that I want to be a part of this, and I want to be faithful. And, but, but how do you measure that? Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul here is saying, I'm praying for you so that you will come to a place of excellency, that your knowledge will be made perfect, so that you will be pure and blameless. You recognize that pure and blameless is language of a measurement. Here is the 
bar that I'm expecting of you, pure and blameless before the day of Christ. I recognize that you, as he's saying this, and he's kind of giving this argument, that I recognize that when you gave your life to Christ, you began the race, but you have yet to finish it. Giving your life to Christ is not the end. It's actually just the beginning. It's you saying, hey, I want to be a part of the race. But his goal is that when the race is finished in the day of Christ, talking about his return and his judgment, I want you to be found faithful, pure, and blameless. Which begs the question, what is that? Colossians 1, Paul would say something very similar when he says, Jesus we proclaim, or him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, Christ's energy that He powerfully works within me. Notice in verse 28, He says, present everyone mature in Christ. Well, what is that? What is mature? What is the measure of a faithful Christian? How do we measure maturity? Is it by action? Is it by something we're doing? Is it by something we're being? Is the measure of a mature Christian something he does or something or someone or something he or she is? The goal of this series is to answer these questions. The goal of this series is for us to answer that question definitively, but also simplistically enough where we can ask the question every single day based off Scripture Am I a faithful disciple of Christ? Am I living up to the measure? Now, let's be careful. We're not living up to a measure of salvation. We're not living up to a measure of that if we're not good enough, then Christ doesn't love us. That's not what we're talking about. Let's be clear that this is the good news of the gospel that you and I believe as Christians in this room that we can never measure up. That Romans 3 says, For all have fallen short of that measure. The measure of perfection, the measure of being worthy of being in Christ's presence. But because we have all fallen short, that we, that through Christ, that we are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a payment or propitiation for our sins to be received by faith. You and I live up to the measure of salvation, a measure of being holy, and a measure of being ultimate in Christ's presence Because of Christ's grace in our lives. Yet, as Christian, Paul would use the same language to talk about a very different thing. And talking about this idea of Christ maturing us to a certain point of pure and blameless. And he says to to the church in Colossae that he preaches Christ and teaches them to this end that they might be mature. So for myself as a preacher and a pastor, if I'm looking for a job description, I feel like Colossians chapter 1 is pretty good. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. One of my callings and one of my jobs as a pastor and the beauty is teaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel, teaching and proclaiming this word, teaching and proclaiming Christ so that everyone in this body may be mature in Christ. That sounds great, but it still leaves us to answer the question, what is maturity? Tonight I want to answer that question and throughout this series for us here at New Hope, we are answering this 
and with three simple phrases. And these simple th- phrases are the phrases that are on this side of the wall. We began the series in January with our mission statement, which is this side of the wall. This is not our mission statement. These aren't even our values. That's even different. These are the marks of maturity. These are the measures of a Christian. And we've defined them with three simple phrases. One, that you would live surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. Two, you would live surrounded by a community of faith. And three, that you would live sense to the world around you. So tonight, we're going to talk about what does it mean to live surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalms 63. Psalms 63. As we turn to Psalm 63, and we're going to unpack this, and we're going to walk through this, and you've heard me briefly teach on this before, but let's talk slightly, just for a second, about what does it mean to, to be surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. What is the Lordship of Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 says it this way. Because of Christ's humility, it says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to recognize that Philippians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 1, make it extremely clear that Christ, when he was resurrected from the grave, that after his death, after his resurrection, and in his ascension, that we read in Acts chapter 1, that when he ascended, that he's now at the right hand of the Father, and that Ephesians 1 says he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That he is above, that he is Lord, that he is supreme over all. And here, Paul would say it in Philippians 2, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, I want us to think about this idea of a kingdom. Earthly speaking, that if there's a king, by definition, the king is the most supreme being in the land, yes? But a king cannot be a king if he doesn't have two other things. He's got to have a kingdom. He's got to have a geography, right? He's, I am king of what? I'm king of England. I'm king of this land. I'm, I'm king of Briarwood. Whatever it may be. You're, there's, there's, there's a king. There's a place. But then there's got to be people. You're not just king over some trees. Right, right? You've got to have a king. You've got to have a kingdom. And you've got to have those that are subject to the king in order to have a king. Otherwise, there is no king. So when he makes this statement... That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That is the subjects that are bowing to the king. That, that the reality of Jesus as Lord means that, that he is king, and that you and I are not king, and that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want us to recognize one very important thing as we start out talking about the Lordship of Jesus. That you and I do not make Jesus Lord. Jesus is already Lord. The question is, will you bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus? See, when we use language like, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Colloquially, it might be the best phrase to say. 
It, practically, it might be the best simple phrase to say what we're trying to say. But the truth is, we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. The question is, will you bow to it? And Paul here, when he says that, every na- that Jesus began to every name that is above all other names, that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, he's not referring to Christians only. He's referring to every creature and everything ever created. Hence, he says, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In all spheres, in all situations, no matter where you are, geography, God is king. His kingdom is all of creation. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The difference for us, and this is the gospel, and this is the urgency of our mission, is one day every knee will bow. But for many, it'll be too late. For many, it'll be on the day of judgment where there is judgment and sin. But before that moment comes, the good news of the gospel is that you can surrender to Christ now and receive grace. This is the reality, the toughness, and the difficulty, and the beauty even of the gospel. For us to say that there is grace, we must recognize that one day there is judgment. To recognize that there is grace offered to my life today means that today... I'm sitting under judgment, that I need grace. And so when we talk about the Lordship of Jesus, let's be clear that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Talking about how this practically applies to our life, Paul would write, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You recognize Paul's simple argument is that no matter your situation, alive, dead, no matter good, bad, rich or poor, whatever it may be, that as Christians surrendering to the Lordship Christ is Lord over all. He is not just Lord of the living. He's not just Lord of the dead. He is Lord over both. He is not just Lord of our lives on Sunday, but he is also Lord of our lives on Monday. Christ is Lord. So when we talk about, and I want to define clearly, live surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, we're talking about this idea of recognizing that Christ is above, he is supreme, he is Lord, he is a loving, gracious God, that he, in his authority, decided, Philippians 2, to humble himself to the point of death for you and I in love and grace and then has been highly exalted above every other name. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. So when we talk about the Lordship of Jesus, I want us to be clear, and Psalm 63 is going to answer this. Well, then how do we still define if we are surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus? Okay, I recognize that I want to live to maturity You're telling me that part of living to maturity is recognizing that I'm not my own, that I'm Christ, that he is Lord, that I live surrender to lordship. But how do I know if I'm living surrender to the lordship of Jesus? Is it because I read my Bible every single day? Maybe. Is it because I go to church? Maybe. Is it because I I don't curse or don't lie or, or don't do any of these things? Maybe. But actions in and of themselves are no pure evidence of you living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Think about it. If I were to define me living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus as reading my Bible every day, is this something that a non-believer can do? Absolutely. I've had and listened and learned from 
Christian scholars that aren't Christian. I know it's an oxymoron. How is that possible? Meaning they, they're scholars of God's word. They study it. They read it. They know the word better than I do, but they don't know Jesus. See, it's possible to read and study God's word, but not be surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Is, is it possible to pray every single day? Is, is that proof that I'm surrendering to the lordship of Jesus? Not necessarily. I know millions of people, I do not personally know, but I know of millions of people who claim to pray every single day, but they're not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. You get where I'm going with this. You get my point. Our actions must be evidence that we are surrendered to Christ. James would tell us that. But in and of themselves, they are not the perfect and only evidence to ourselves that we are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. If we are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, then yes, we are going to love his word. Yes, we are going to love him. Yes, we are going to love his people. Yes, we are going to do these things. But doing those things are no perfect evidence that I'm surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. But I believe Psalm 63 will give us a good answer of understanding of what does it mean to live surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. So without further ado, let me read Psalm 63 to us and let's walk through it together. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for uh, jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 63, if you're filling in and you've got a handout today, I went ahead and just gave you the main point of the sermon because it's plastered on a wall, so there's no point in doing a fill-in-the-blank for that one. But the main point of today's sermon is to live surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And I want to give you three things that, I, that for me personally have been a diagnosis, if you will, something that I can measure if I'm truly living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And the first one is the word desire. Desire. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I love the psalmist. I love uh, David here specifically as he's writing this. David is a, is a much better songwriter than I because if I were writing what King David was writing, I would just simply say, God, I desire you. That's not very picturesque. It's not that you know, visual. I, I can't really picture that. I just say, God, I desire you. I, I'm, a, I'm a simple analytical thinker and for me, I would just simply say, God, I desire you. But here, King David wants to describe his desire by bringing out visual language. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You and I are not having the problem of no water today. 
not just from the rain, but even from the blessings of being able to essentially turn on a faucet and have water. You and I, even in the hotness of the New York summer, that, that even in those moments where like, I've got to find water, we can find water within a few blocks if necessary. So for me to try to imagine this idea that my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I can't help but to imagine only what I've seen on TV screens. Only help but see that, a, that someone's in a situation where they're in the desert and, and they're walking around and they're lost for whatever reason, how they got there, I don't know. I choose to live far away from the desert so I don't have to find myself in this situation. But some do and they find themselves in the situation and then the movie always has a picture of a mirage or something where they find water and don't find water and it's this whole deception that their mind is playing on them because of dehydration and their body that is failing because they're in desperate need of water. Here is how King David chooses to describe this. Now, recognizing the region that he's lived in, he has probably found himself in a similar situation at times. But how would you, if you didn't live in a desert area, how might you describe for yourself, in your own language, in your own understanding, the deep desperation that King David is describing as a desire for God. And would that desire of desperation be the same as how you would desire your desperation for God? For us, we might think of a situation, for many, I know this is the case, many of you have gone not just weeks, months, but many of you have gone years in need of a job. And I can imagine that you found yourself at times, after a long times of trying to find a job here in New York City in a difficult job market and not being able to do so, almost losing hope and giving up. You're willing to do anything, but the opportunities aren't availing themselves and you're just, just going hopeless and helpless in this long period of desperation. And how much you would just go, man, I just wish I had a job. I just wish I had a job. I just wish. And you, you're willing to do just about anything. I'll work nights. I'll work days. I, I, I'll drive. I'll walk in the snow, uphill, both ways to get to the job. You know, whatever tell it may be because you want it so bad. Is that how you would describe your desire for God? See, the reason why I like this passage is because this describes characteristics of the soul that cannot be faked. See, when we talk about the lordship of Jesus, I can fake the lordship of Jesus by reading my Bible. I can read my Bible and not be surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. That can be faked. But desire cannot be faked. Either you want it or you don't, and you can't help it. I want New York pizza, and I can't help it, right? I, I, I can't help that I really like cheese. I, I can't help that I really like these things. And in some sense, I can't control that. I, I would prefer to eat that over veggies. And that's been that way for generations. My kids are like that. It, it's just something that cannot be faked. And here, King David is describing that the most natural desire in a desert situation without water is water. The most natural desire in that situation is water. And he's equating that to the most natural desire of his heart and his soul, which is for God. See, our soul desires something. It always does. It's desiring fulfillment in X. Relationship, job, work, status. 
We desire a lot of things, and those desires aren't wrong, but when they become the presiding desire of our soul over Christ, and then they become the Lord of our soul. See, whatever your soul is bowed to, that is the Lord of your soul. And King David is saying, in the same desperation of someone who is fainting in a weary land and desperate need of water, that is the situation of my soul in desperation for God. Here is someone who desires the lordship of God. Now recognizing he's writing from the Old Testament, Christ has yet to be revealed in the New Testament, so... But we, living in the New Testament era, we can equate that to going, we and our desire for Jesus. So the question is, am I living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? First question you've got to ask yourself, do you desire Jesus? Second question is, do you delight in Jesus? Truth number two, delight. Let me go on and read, finishing out truth number one in verse three. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, truth number 2. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I want to draw your attention to how one, how am I breaking this passage apart? In this passage, this phrase, my soul, occurs three times. Three times that King David is referring to his soul and he's using it intentionally to make three points. My soul thirsts for you, which is desire. And then in verse 5 he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He's describing delight. He's describing a circular reality, cyclical, meaning that it's happening in a cycle, but it's also happening in order. First comes this desire. This desire for God comes with this reality of meeting Him. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. There is a delight that happens when we desire Christ. We are delighted in Christ And once again, he uses imagery much better than I. Just so happens, though, that Thanksgiving was recent, right? This imagery makes a little more sense to me all of a sudden. This moment on Thanksgiving where we always, wherever you're at, no matter whose home you're at, if you had the privilege of being with family as I did, I'm grateful for that. Had the privilege of being with friends also, you immediately come in and you recognize we have three times as much food as we need. We, we tend to make way too much food because we bring out the best. We want the fat and rich food. We want the best of the best. And, and if you're on any type of diet, all hands are off on that. Like we're just going to eat whatever we can. Uh, I'm not saying no to cheese anymore in order to say yes to greens. I'm eating all the cheese I can get. I'm eating it all. I'm getting all I can. And then this moment comes... Well, you're not even halfway through the food. You're so full. And then you look up and see like 10 desserts. And you're just like, I can't even do it. I, I can't even do it. In fact, I can't even get up. Like, I, I don't even, I, I, I'm, I'm all of a sudden just stuck to this chair. There's this moment that really Thanksgiving is second to none in this experience in my life where I'm just satisfied physically with food that I'm going, I can't think of anything I want to eat right now. That is how King David describes his delight in God. I've I've got all I need and some, and I can't think of anything else I need right now. 
is that how you would describe your relationship with Christ? That in these moments when you do get in His Word, you get in His Word not to do something in order to feel like you're living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, but because you genuinely desire Him, you meet Him in His Word that you want to study, you want to learn, and when you do, you come to the other end of that moment and you can't help but to describe it the same way you describe physically how you feel after a big Thanksgiving meal. I am satisfied. And there's still so much more to eat. Even the best stuff is still coming. And I just, I'm just satisfied. See, God has the ability somehow to make us fully satisfied, but yet leave us wanting more. I don't know how He does it. Somehow I come to moments and I desire, and I have these moments where I go, God, I have everything. You've given me everything, but yet I still want more of You. How does that happen? I don't know. But this is how King David describes his king. I desire you more than anything. I desire you more than life itself. When my body is fading away, I desire you even. That's the number one desire of my soul. And then my soul is delighted in you. And then thirdly, we see this picture of dependence. He says this in verse 7, and I'll read on, and we'll pick it up in verse 8. Well, let me back up. Let me start in verse 6, and then we'll get to verse 8. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. He's describing that delight. And then he gets to dependence in verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. I'm going to give a parent illustration as I often do. But there are a few things that personally bring me more joy than one of my kids choosing to cling on to me because they'd rather do that than the alternative. Whatever the alternative may be. It could be as simple as going to do homework. I don't know. Whatever the alternative is, it doesn't matter, but it's this moment where they just come and go, I'd rather have you than whatever else is offered out there. I'd rather have you. It's even better when they choose me over my wife. Like, that's a great moment. That rarely ever happens. Like, I have a journal page that has like three entries in five years where that has happened. Like, that's it. But in those moments where they come and cling, imagine the moment where King David here is describing how else does he depend upon God because God upholds him. It means God is his strength, that God is his everything. He says, I cling to that. My soul clings to you. You've got to understand, King David was a king who was a great warrior. He saw great battles, whether it was against animals, whether it was against giants, whether it was against giant armies, whether it was against the king before him that tried to kill him, whether it was against his own son who tried to kill him. King David knew suffering. He knew fighting. He knew calamity. He knew what it meant to get up and fight to survive. Once again, he doesn't go, you know what? I cling to my mighty men. I cling to my practice. I cling to my ability and my own strength. He says, no, it's because I desire God. It's because I delight in God. I cling and depend upon him because he is the one against other kings, against giants, against animals, against my own son. He is the one who upholds me and gives me life. He is my everything. So therefore, I cling to him. Question, are you surrendered to the lordship of Jesus? Next question, 
Are you dependent upon him? Church family, you've got to listen to me. It's real easy for us to miss this part. Once again, this can't be faked. Desire can't be faked. Delight can't be faked. Dependence cannot be faked. It, it's the closest to being able to be faked, though. It's easy for us to come in to church or into gatherings and to say, I need you and I trust you, but really we're trusting our job. Or really we're trusting our retirement. Or really we're trusting the government. Or really we're trusting this or this or this. And now once again, I'm not saying you should quit your job. I have a retirement plan. Like I'm saying these things are wise, that you should have these things. But do you depend upon them for life? When it comes down to the one thing that you would say, my soul really is seeking after and trusting with my life for hope, for salvation, would you cling on to Jesus or would you cling on to something else? See, the truth and the reality is, is just like with desire, just like with delight, just like with dependence, your soul is surrendered to something as Lord. Question is, what is it? Even as Christians, at times our soul can almost get off our knees and surrender, metaphorically speaking, and worship something else in this world. See, naturally we're prone to worship the creation instead of the creator. But I want us to see the truth and the reality is, is our soul is bowing its knee to some Lord. The question is, is it surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? And then the next question is, if it's not surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, answer this question honestly, can that Lord sustain you? Can that Lord delight and give you the delights of your heart? Can that Lord, can you depend upon it for all eternity? See, Jesus has the unique place and responsibility of being a Lord that is powerful enough to Lord over us, but not crush us. He has the ability to lord over us and be above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, but yet still lovingly and safely bring us into his eternal presence. He is the only one who can, we can ultimately depend on from all protection and all salvation and all love and care. Why? Is because simply he recognized that he had to die for us. So therefore he is the only Lord worthy of our worship. See, every other Lord that your soul wants to go to is asking for you to die for it. Your managers are asking you to die for your job, die for your company. Maybe not literally, but in some sense, metaphorically, very real. With your time, you'll sacrifice family, you'll sacrifice all these things. And there, now, let's be clear, there's a big difference in doing those things because you're worshiping that in, or just simply providing. So I'm not saying long work hours is inherently evil. Don't miss my point. The point is, Christ is the only Lord that died for you instead of asking you to die for it. So the question is, are you living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I begin to close, says is this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
The reality is we step into relationship with Christ by bowing to Him as Lord. But that doesn't mean tomorrow we decide to, you know what, I I don't want you to be Lord of my life anymore. Yes, absolutely, He is faithful to justify and be your Savior in that moment, in that day. But guess what, tomorrow He is still your King. Tomorrow, when you're faced with a difficult situation, He is still your King. And is He what your soul desire, delights, and depends upon above all? And I'm telling you as your pastor that I desire to preach Christ and Him we proclaim and teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I desire to present all of us mature in Christ and I want to define that maturity as one of the ways of living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And then how do I know if I'm living surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? Do you desire Him? Do you delight in Him? And do you depend upon Him? And if you're in here today, honestly, and you go, you know what? No. I thought I was surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus because I came to church or prayed a prayer or read my Bible, all of which will be evidence of true surrender, but in and of themselves are not the perfect evidence. The perfect evidence is something inside you that you have to be honest with about yourself that cannot be faked. And if you're in here and you go, you know what? I don't think I've ever been honest. I don't think I've ever truly desired, delighted, and depended upon Him. I've never truly lived surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. Then would you hear Romans 10 one more time? But if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Would you confess Jesus as Lord? Would you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Meaning that he's raised from the dead, meaning he is above all rule and authority, that he is Lord and you will be saved. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you offer us to be a part of your kingdom. That you are a king on a throne. You have a kingdom, and that's all of creation. And you are inviting us into your kingdom. And you've already paid the price for us to come and be citizens of your kingdom. The question simply will be is will we bow or will we not? So Father, would we hear the beauty of the invitation that you are inviting us into your kingdom? Yes, we will no longer be the king of our lives. Absolutely. And that's a good thing. Because if I'm the king of my life, that means I depend upon me for salvation. And I don't know about you, but I cannot depend upon me for salvation. Depending on me got me in the place of needing salvation. So therefore, I look outside of myself. I look outside of creation itself. And I look to the Creator, the King. I look to the King. Confess you as Lord. I'm not my own anymore. I'm yours. And that's a good place to be. I've been adopted into the family. I'm not just a servant. I'm a child but I will faithfully serve as a child of the King. So Jesus, I pray over this room, if there's anybody in this room that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today they would surrender to your Lordship. That Jesus, you would awaken their heart, that you would bring them from death to life, that salvation would enter into their hearts today. That you would become the King of their soul. Jesus, I pray for all the Christians in the room, including myself. 
Jesus, would you help me desire you more? Would you help me delight in you more? Would you help me to depend upon you more? This can't be faked, and I'm being honest, Jesus. I've got a long ways to go in those categories, but I desire to lift surrender to you. I desire to desire you. And I know that many in this room are praying that same prayer. Would you help us? Would you help us find delight in your word every single day? Would you help us find dependence upon you? That in difficult situations, we wouldn't first go to our friends, we would go to our knees. We wouldn't just even first come to the pastor, but we go first to the word of God ourselves and trust the Holy Spirit. That we would begin with you because we depend upon you in times of difficulty. What we turn to first is pure evidence of what we depend on most. And so let that be you first for all of us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. And we surrender to you as the Lord of our lives. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?